You're listening to Cultivate Curiosity, a podcast that inspires the next generation to stay curious. Cultivate Curiosity is brought to you by the Emerald Coast Science Center, a nonprofit interactive science museum and STEAM educational facility in Fort Long Beach, Florida. This podcast is perfect for anyone curious about the world we live in because you never know what we'll talk about next. Hey, it's Diane, the director at the Emerald Coast Science Center. Hi, it's JC, the social media coordinator. And hi, it's Harley, an educator and community affairs coordinator here at the Emerald Coast Science Center. This episode is about Women's History Month. Yay, March! <laughs> um, Women's History Month is extremely important to us here at the Science Center, not because the majority of us staff are women, um, but because women deserve to be heard and their stories deserve to be told. During this month and all other months, let's celebrate the countless women who have fought tirelessly for equality, justice, and opportunity in our nation and others. Let's turn our celebration into action and work to put together programs that are held to help foster the growth of supporting women in STEM fields and all other career fields. Now, Women's History Month is not just for women to learn about either. Normally, girls are the main focus for teaching them about the courageous women that came before them during Women's History Month, but boys need to learn this information too. This month was in part created to help females combat the stereotypical images of women they received from their male-dominated history curriculum, but it may be even more important to combat those images in the heads of males. Many problems we have with how females are treated by males can be connected to the historical viewing of women as less than men. The adverse effects of exclusively teaching that history in class cannot be overstated. In spite of being held back for centuries, women have managed to become much more than what society has intended them to be. However, if you are not intentionally teaching the accomplishments of women, then you likely won't as much of history is written by men. If we truly want society to advance in gender equality, then it's not enough for women to see themselves as equal and valuable. Men have to see it too. Did you know that girls and women are systemically tracked away from science and math through their education, limiting their training and options to go into these fields as adults. Women make up only around 28% of the workforce in science, technology, engineering, and math, or STEM. And men vastly outnumber women majoring in most STEM fields in college. The gender gaps are particularly high in some of the fastest growing and highest paid jobs of the future, like computer science and engineering. What can we do to change this discrepancy in female to male ratios? So we'll share some of the amazing stories of different female scientists throughout time. These stories are in chronological order of sorts. So as we go through them, we will move from scientists who did exceptional things in the mid-1800s to the present-day scientists who are changing the world as we know it. So I'm going to talk about Emily Warren Roebling. Her lifespan was from 1843 to 1903. So Emily was an engineer known for her contributions over a period of more than 10 years to the completion of the Brooklyn Bridge after her husband developed caseone disease and became bedridden. She served as a liaison and supervisor of construction through communicating between her husband and on-site personnel. She developed an extensive knowledge of strength of materials, stress analysis, cable construction, and calculating catenary curves through her husband's teachings. She complemented her knowledge by her prior interests in and study of the British construction when her husband was first appointed as chief engineer. For the decade that her husband was confined to his sickbed, she was dedicated to the completion of the Brooklyn Bridge. She took over much of the chief engineer duties, including day-to-day -day supervision and project management. The bridge was finally completed in 1883. In advance of the official opening, carrying a rooster as sign of victory, Emily was the first to cross the bridge by carriage. Today, the Brooklyn Bridge is marked with a plaque dedicated to the memory of her, her husband, and her father-in-law, who all helped in the construction of the bridge. 
Emily is also known for her influential essay, A Wife's Disabilities, from 1899, which won wide acclaim and awards. In it, she argued for greater women's rights and railed against discriminatory practices targeted at women. Okay, why is a rooster... Like, I don't know. Praised. I don't know. I mean, it was like cool. The I guess the pinnacle of like we finished this she says, bridge. I have to take this rooster. Yeah, with in me. a carriage across <laughs> it. But oh it's really great because she took over basically everything. She already had some interest in it, like I said, but basically she was doing everything. And her husband was actually still getting paid for all the work, and he almost actually got fired. And the only reason that she was able to, like, liaison for him still mm-hmm. was she actually fought with, like, politicians and talked to them and mm. was like, oh, no, like, he's he's fine, still doing it, like, <laughs> so. That's pretty cool. Yeah. And there's a, a Roebling Bridge in between Cincinnati and Northern Kentucky. Mm-hmm. That's the name of the bridge, the Roebling Bridge. And I think there's also one. I've walked on that bridge. Yeah, when we went to Pittsburgh, I think one of the bridges <laughs> in Pittsburgh was mm-hmm. also designed by Roebling. Oh. So, I mean, he was a very famous, yeah. famous name in bridge design and it was like the father-in-law her husband's father had set it all up and designed it but then he passed away so like he Mm. took it over but then he got sick so like she kind of took it over so like a whole family set up there gotcha okay this next woman we'll see if people can guess it has two nobel prizes one in chemistry and one in physics it's Marie Curie she was born in 1867 and passed in 1934 and honestly I feel like Diane loves Marie Curie so she should talk about her you could probably just rattle off everything without me doing anything but Marie Curie is an amazing scientist she worked with Pierre Curie um, who was professor and then ended up they got married and they worked together and helped discover radium right? It was Mm -hmm. radium. I actually was just telling some kids today about that in the annual presentation. I had Pierre and Beck and they were like, oh cool, who are they named after? Mm -hmm. Because all of the kids today wanted to know who everybody was named after and why, which it was awesome. That's perfect. And so I was like, okay, I don't normally talk about this as much, but we'll talk about it. And so I was able to discuss like, hey, it's Pierre and Beck and Mm -hmm. they worked with Marie Curie and they loved it. But Do you want to add more? I think one of the things, again, so this is the turn of the century. Mm -hmm. And if I remember the story correctly, Marie Curie is originally from Poland. And she and her sister both wanted to study. And because they didn't have any money, they came to Paris to study. And they went to the Sorbonne. And they took turns. So one of them would work for years while one could go to school. And then the other one would work and support the other sister. So that way, between the two of them, they were able to make sure that they each got through school. And of course, I could take up the rest of the podcast talking <laughs> about Marie Curie. She is just that fascinating and that incredible of a role model. And, you know, I think Harley had in her notes that her husband was run over by a carriage. Mm-hmm and died. So this is in Paris during the times before cars and, you know, so horse and carriage. And, you know, so she carried on doing the research. They had two daughters, which one of them became a chemist and her husband and her, their daughter, Irene, also went on to win a Nobel Prize mm-hmm. in chemistry. And then their other daughter married a Frenchman and he was part of an organization that won a Nobel Peace Prize. So within this one family of four, they have five Nobel Prizes. <laughs> 
is, <laughs> you know, I mean, that just, you know, shows you the incredible story behind Marie Curie. And I think during World War One, she had a, a portable x-ray machine and mm-hmm. they took it out. She and her daughter took it out into the field and were taking x-rays of battle wounded soldiers. Mm-hmm. And I read somewhere there's another tidbit that her laboratory notebooks are still so radioactive. They're like in containers and boxes so that Whoa. you can't like touch them with your bare hands. You have like you stick them to those lead line gloves and then, you know, you can turn the pages in the notebook like that because that's just, you know, we didn't know. Yeah. I mean, yeah. they just discovered radioactivity, right? They had mm-hmm. no idea. Everybody thought that it was good. Mm-hmm. And, you know, they put it in all sorts of products and everything and they, they talked about how wonderful radioactivity is. And then mm-hmm. later on we decided, eh, maybe not so much. Yeah. <laughs> all of her notebooks. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So yeah, she's she's incredible and mm-hmm. I think she's a great role model for young girls today that are looking into getting into the STEM fields. Yeah. She really took like what could be like a terrible year for her when her husband passed and decided to just keep working on everything and also she started teaching at Sorbonne and she was the first woman to teach there. So, within the year right after he passed. So, she's incredible and there's lots of I think there's a movie about Marie Curie that just recently came out mm-hmm. a couple of years ago. That was pretty good. It was very interesting. Another female for Women's History Month I noticed is Catherine Esau. She was born in 1898 and passed in 1997. She's a Russian-born botanist, and she did pioneering research and laid the groundwork for modern scientists studying plant structure and cell function, and she continues to influence generations of many botany students. Esau began studying agriculture in Moscow and then Berlin. After her family immigrated to the United States, she received her doctorate from the University of California at Berkeley. Her early career in botany centered around researching the hybridization and viruses of crops and later focused on light microscope studies of plant anatomy as technology advanced. Foam, the food conducting tissue in plants, was a major subject of her research. Her popular 1953 textbook, Plant Anatomy, is still an often assigned classic in the field of botany. So 1953, it's still up to date and it's still correct even right now in 2023, which is awesome. When she was a professor at the University of California at Santa Barbara in 1989, Esau was awarded the National Medal of Science for her work, becoming the first trained botanist to receive that award. So she's pretty cool. Nobody's surprised Harley picked a botanist. No. No. <laughs> Not I see at all. a theme here, Harley. Just wait for the next one. <laughs> so I'm going to talk a little bit about Mary Leakey. She was born in 1913 and died in 1996. And she was a British paleoanthropologist. And she worked with her husband, Louis Leakey. Um, and they discovered the first fossilized proconsul skull, an extinct ape, which is now believed to be ancestral to humans. She also discovered the robust Zenzanthropus skull at the Olduvai Gorge in Tanzania, Eastern Africa. Um, so they spent all of their working lives in Africa in the Olduvai Gorge, and they uncovered fossils of ancient hominids and the earliest hominins, um, as well as stone tools produced by the earliest hominins. She developed a system for classifying the stone tools that they found. During her career, she discovered 15 new species of animal, and she also brought about the naming of a new genus. She was honored by the Royal Mail in the United Kingdom as one of six people selected as subjects for the Great Britain's commemorative postage stamp that was issued in April 2013. And the Leakey were the ones that discovered Lucy Mm -hmm. and our 
Colombian red-tailed boa constrictor mm-hmm. is named Lucy. After that, I mean, her name was Lucy anyway when we got her. Mm-hmm. So we said, okay, well, let's go find something that... We found it, a correlation. Yeah, we yeah. found a correlation. <laughs> Sometimes we try and do that. And so she was named after those remains that were the leakies found in Africa. So the next one we're going to talk about is Sally Ride. She was born in 1951 and passed away in 2012. Sally was instrumental in creating career and educational opportunities for women and girls in science and mathematics. As an astronaut, she became the first American woman in space in 1983. She was the youngest American astronaut to have flown in space, having done so at the age of 32. On NASA's second and third space shuttle missions, her job was to work the robotic arm, which was used to put satellites into space. After she left NASA in 1987 to take up a two-year fellowship at the Stanford University Center for International Security and Arms Control, she researched means by which nuclear warheads could be counted and verified from space, but the impending end of the Cold War made this a much less pressing issue. From the mid-1990s forward, Sally led two public outreach programs for NASA, the ISS EarthCam and GRAIL MoonCam projects, in cooperation with NASA's Jet Propulsion Laboratory and UCSD. The programs allowed middle school students to request images of the Earth and the Moon. Sally also received numerous awards throughout her lifetime and afterwards, including an induction into the National Women's Hall of Fame and the Astronaut Hall of Fame. I think we have a picture of her in our women's restroom. Oh, yeah. Because it's the great quote that she said, you can't be what you can't see. You know, so that was kind of like the, the kickoff quote to us decorating our women's restroom in the way that we have with all of these incredible women in STEM fields throughout the course of history. You know, and it kind of started with that idea of you can't be what you can't see. So mm-hmm. we wanted to make sure that everybody can see themselves in these career fields, in these roles, in these research opportunities. So the next step we're going to talk about Flossie Wong-Stahl. She was born in 1946 and just passed away in 2020. She was a Chinese-American virologist and molecular biologist. She was the first scientist to clone HIV and determine the function of its genes, which was a major step in proving that HIV was the cause of AIDS. She conducted research in the late 1970s on the human retrovirus, human T-cell leukemia virus, and determined that it was the causative agent in human adult T-cell leukemia. Her team specifically studied the molecular virology by examining its transcriptional activators and post-translational regulators. This discovery was significant in the study of human retroviruses as there was prior debate as to whether retroviruses could cause human diseases. From 1990 to 2002, she held the Florence Rifford Chair in AIDS Research at the University of California, San Diego. She continued her research into the HIV AIDS at UCSD, focusing on gene therapy using a ribosome molecular knife to uh, repass HIV in stem cells. The protocol she had developed was the second to be funded by the U.S. government. The team of researchers performed tests on a variety of cells that carried the TAT protein with a viral strain of HIV and observed the rate of cell proliferation in cells affected by HIV in a controlled set of cells. Their findings from this research were essential in developing new treatments for HIV AIDS patients who suffer from lesions. Wow, that's cool. Yeah, Um, a lot of work. Our next woman is RBG, Ruth Bader Ginsburg. She was born in 1933 and passed in 2020. She's not a scientist, but science supporter for sure. She was also a huge champion of women's rights and just passed away at only 87. She was the first female Jewish Supreme Court justice, and she was only one of six female justices in history. She was also a huge supporter of environmental laws, which is important for science. And although she passed, her name still lives on in the textbooks and in 
a new species of praying mantis. <laughs> Probably didn't think we were going to tie Ruth Bader Ginsburg to bugs, but here we are. This species name is Elomantis Ginsburgae. So a new species of the praying mantis has been identified actually based on female genitals for the first time. And this is a break from the traditional use of male genitalia for insect species classification. Insects typically with like a hook-shaped genitalia might be classified as one species, where those with like a curved one might be classified as like another. The male genitalia have been preferred because of their seemingly wider and like it's easier to see basically and just different shapes and sizes. But Elomantis Ginsburgae is a leaf dwelling mantis from Madagascar according to a new study in insect systematics and evolution. It was named in honor of U.S. Supreme Court Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg, strong supporter of gender equality and a regular wearer of the Jabo collars which resemble the neck plate of the insect. So the scientists hope that this new identification will help make species classification easier by increasing the number of possible ways to differentiate bugs. She also has one of my favorite quotes. We were playing a game in the SciPad the other day, and one of the questions was, what is your favorite quote? JC, you made the yes, game, so yeah. you know what it was. <laughs> and this was for a nonprofit training group. And the quote, essentially, I'm paraphrasing it because I don't remember it exactly. It says, fight for the things that you believe in, but do it in such a way that other people want to join you. Mm-hmm. And I think everybody has things that they're passionate about. And sometimes we can become a little overbearing in our passion. But I also think that, you know, that's a good way to sort of temper your passions to make sure that whatever it is that you're passionate about, that you're doing it in such a way that people will look at you and go, oh, okay, yeah, I get why you feel that way. Mm -hmm. So I, I just think that's a great quote. Yeah, you almost got it right on the nail too. Fight for the things that you care about, but do it in a way that will lead others to join you. Beautiful. Good job. (laughs) All right. So the next scientist that we're going to talk about is Gladys Mae West. So she was born in 1930 and she is still alive today. So Gladys is an American mathematician known for her contributions to the mathematical modeling of the shape of the earth and her work on the development of the satellite geodesy models that were eventually incorporated into the global positioning system or the GPS. In 1956, West was hired to work as the Naval Surface Warfare Center, where she was the second black woman ever hired and one of only four black employees. She was a programmer in their Dahlgren division for large-scale computers and a project manager for data processing systems using the analysis of satellite data. At the same time, she earned a second master's degree in public administration from the University of Oklahoma. In the early 1960s, she participated in an award-winning astronomical study that proved the regularity of Pluto's motion relative to Neptune. Subsequently, West began to analyze data from satellites, especially satellite altimeters such as GEOS-3, putting together models of the Earth's shape. She became project manager for the CSAT radar altimetry project, the first satellite that could remotely sense oceans. She consistently put in extra hours, cutting her team's processing time in half. From the mid-1970s through the 1980s, West programmed an IBM 7030 stretch computer to deliver increasingly precise calculations to model the shape of the Earth, an ellipsoid with additional undulations known as a geoid. Generating an extremely accurate geopotential model required her to employ complex algorithms to account for variations in gravitational, tidal, and other forces that distort Earth's shape. In 1986, she published data processing system specifications for the Geosat satellite radar altimeter, 
a 51-page technical report from the Naval Service Weapons Center, NSWC. The guide was published to explain how to increase the accuracy of the estimation of geoid heights and vertical deflection, important components of satellite geodesy. She worked at Dahl Green for 42 years, retiring in 1998, which was the year I was born, so that's kind of crazy to think about. After <laughs> retiring, she completed a PhD in public administration from Virginia Tech. She was inducted into the United States Air Force Hall of Fame in 2018 and awarded the Webby Lifetime Achievement Award at the 25th Annual Webby Awards for the development of the geodesy satellite models. Our next woman we have is Sylvia Earle. She was born in 1935 and she is still alive today. Sylvia Earle is an American oceanographer and explorer known for her research on marine algae and her books and documentaries designed to raise awareness of the threats that overfishing and pollution rose to the world's oceans. One of these documentaries she has done is actually on Netflix and it's called Mission Blue. I have watched it I think five times. (laughs) It's very very good. It's also like very eye-opening and can be a little sad but she is wonderful in it. Sylvia was also a pioneer in the use of modern self-contained underwater breathing apparatus known as scuba gear and the development of deep sea submersibles. Earl also has held the world record for the deepest untethered dive. During the early 1980s, Earl founded the Deep Ocean Engineering and Deep Ocean Technology with British engineer Graham Hawks. Together they designed the submersible Deep Rover, a vehicle capable of reaching depths of 914 meters, which is about 3,000 feet, and this is beneath the surface of the ocean. She is also sometimes fondly referred to as her deepness. She has set records for solo diving, lived in underwater laboratories, and navigated dark corners of the oceans in small submarines. In the course of her research and exploration, she has spent more than 7,000 hours underwater, marveling at the diversity of the oceans. That's a long time. I know. (laughs) She's a fish. Next up, we're going to talk about Marion Croak. She was born in 1955, and she is still presently alive. So the great question is, and you guys will not remember this, mm-hmm. no. dial-up internet. I had dial-up internet. Oh, did you? I did. Okay. I did when you were one? <laughs> no, I think I was... It was like lower elementary. Okay. Yeah. So if you remember dial-up internet, we can thank Marion Croak for no longer having to use it. Yay. She invented voice over internet protocol, or VOIP. It allows us to communicate verbally via the internet, specifically a broadband connection. This technology enables us to talk on FaceTime, Zoom, and other apps that connect friends and family around the world. Today, the widespread use of VOIP technology is vital for remote working and conferencing, and we know we've all used a lot of Zoom over the last mm-hmm. couple of years. Well, we still have Kate on there. Yeah, yes, thankfully. we do. In 2022, Marian, owner of 200 plus U.S. patents, was one of the first black women to be inducted into the Inventors Hall of Fame. Among her inventions is the text to donate function that her team helped create in the wake of Hurricane Katrina, which has helped raise millions of dollars for disaster relief efforts since it launched in 2005. She is now president of engineering at Google. All right, and so the last female scientist will highlight today is Nina Tandon. She was born in 1980 and is still presently alive today. Nina is an American biomedical engineer. She is the CEO and co-founder of EpiBone. She currently serves as an adjunct professor of electrical engineering at Cooper Union and is a senior fellow at the Lab for Stem Cells and Tissue Engineering at Columbia. Nina attended college at Cooper Union, graduating with a Bachelor of Electrical Engineering in 2001. While completing her undergraduate education, she built an electronic musical instrument which is played through 
through human bodies' electromagnetic waves. From 2003 to 2004, Nina attended the University of Rome Tor Vergata. There, she worked on the development of Libra Nose, analyzing patient breast samples to determine the feasibility of a non-invasive cancer-smelling device. In 2006, she graduated from MIT with an MS in electrical engineering, having received an MIT Presidential Fellowship in 2004. She later studied at Columbia University, graduating in 2009 with a PhD in biomedical engineering, with a concentration in cardiac tissue engineering. As a biomedical engineer, Nina worked at Columbia University to force growth and stimulation of cells using electrical currents. Currently, she has grown cells on rat hearts to beat, but her ultimate goal is to have the ability to create a process where scientists can grow entire human organs. She later co-founded EpiBone and currently serves as the company's CEO. EpiBone is a biomedical engineering company that is developing technology to create bone tissue from a patient's mesenchymal stem cells in vitro for use in bone grafts. She's also 43. Yeah. That's it. Pretty young. Pretty young. So, like, to point out that we're recording this episode on the first day of Women's History Month. Yes. So, that being said, we do have other female scientists that we are spotlighting or highlighting this month that we'll uh, be sharing information about on our blog and social posts. So, blogs every Wednesday and then also on Thursday on social media. So, you guys can check those out as well. There's some pretty cool ones in there. Cool. So, that's it for the episode. We'll see you guys in two weeks. Bye. Bye. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of Cultivate Curiosity. If you have any questions, feel free to email us at socialmedia at ecscience.org. Tune in for our next episode in two weeks.